You're listening to the weekly teaching podcast of Willamette Christian Church in Westland, Oregon. We hope that what you hear today inspires you to laugh, question, think, and grow. If you'd like to connect with us even further, hit us up online at willamette.cc or shoot us a direct message on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Uh, we're in this series, if you are newer, newer, and you don't know what we've been doing, we're, we're in this series called A Different Kind of Happy. We're spending some time over this um, last couple months looking at what it means to follow Jesus because Jesus has invited us to pursue a different kind of life that leads to a different kind of happy. And we've been looking at this kind of idea of happy because in, the, in Matthew chapter 5, it's what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And on the very beginning of this sermon, it's Jesus teaching people who had all sorts of questions, all sorts of concerns, all sorts of hopes and wishes, and he's painting this picture of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom in what is known as the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, it's this list, and it's about these different blessings that God gives in a different kind of way. And we're using this different because it really is different, especially when it comes to happy. We've been looking at the difference between normal happy, versus normal happy versus a different kind of happy that will appear on the screen magically when you just click your fingers like that. There we go. That's, that's how it works. I forgot to snap. Uh, but a normal kind of happy versus a different kind of happy. And here's the big idea that normal happy isn't bad. It's just normal. Normal are the things that you look forward to. Normal are the things that make you smile. Uh, Jen and I went out with some friends last night. Normal happy. Great time. I hope you have normal happy in your life. But we all know this about normal happy. Normal happy has a flip side. There is a different because normal happy is also flea eating. Normal happy is also circumstantial. Normal happy is also temporary. We know this, that that this idea of happiness, it it can be fleeting. You're chasing it and needing it to happen in your life. It's circumstantial. I can't be happy unless I have this, unless they respond this way, unless, unless, unless. And if you don't get it, you're not experiencing normal happy. Normal happy is temporary, where it's just for a short amount of time, and then you're looking for something else. But again, Jesus came, and he goes, I get it, but you were created for more than this, a different kind of happy, one that is not fleeting, one that is not circumstantial, one that is not temporary. He wanted to show us that there is more to life as we experience the goodness of what God has invited us into. And Jesus taught us this, that God can be found, and lives can be blessed in the midst of disappointing outcomes and unavoidable pain. That no matter who you are, no matter what you're going through, no matter what valley season, you don't need everything to go right in your life to experience the type of happy that God has for you. And that should be good news. Good news for you. Good news for me. Because a lot of life is in the valley, not on the mountaintop. And God says, listen, I get it. I understand. But no matter who you are, blessing hasn't avoided you. God hasn't avoided you or overlooked you. That every single one of us are invited to experience this blessed life. And so we've been looking at the Beatitudes, one different one each week, and been looking at what this word blessed is all about. Each one of these starts with blessed, and this is Greek word makarios. And the idea of this blessed, especially in the Beatitudes, is to extend or make long. 
an announcement to whom God has extended his kingdom. It means you're supremely blessed, fortunate, well-off, happy, or happier. This is this long, an extension, a long invitation, which means everybody's invited. People in the back, my back row people back there, online people. The extension is there is no boundary. God's extension and invitation to this kingdom has been given. You are invited. And when you enter into this kingdom, when you experience this kingdom, when you live out this kingdom, you will be supremely blessed, fortunate, well-off, happy, or happier, no matter what you're going through. Jesus is basically gathering these people together. He's, he's preaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and he's saying, listen, I'm doing something. I'm establishing my kingdom. The, the thing that you long for, the thing you were created for, the thing that you've been waiting for, the kingdom of heaven is touching earth. God's establishing his plans and you're invited into it. But this is what it will look like. I love uh, the late uh, Dallas Willard, one of our favorite theologians. We quote him a lot. He paraphrased Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in kind of one simple sentence. And he paraphrased it this way. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is now close enough for you to live in it. So here are the house rules. He's like, hey, you're invited. It's so close now. It's no longer like one day we're going to experience something. He's trying to change the way people think. And maybe you need to change the way you think because maybe you think, well, someday I guess we'll get to heaven. Someday we'll get to experience the kingdom. Someday. And what Jesus wanted people to know then, what he wants us to know now, is that the kingdom of heaven is here. It's also not yet, but it is close enough for you to experience it. There is something in the midst of who, wherever you find yourself to experience the blessing of God. But he was very clear. He's like, but this is what it looks like. He was casting vision. He, he was saying, hey, this is what we're like. In fact, I mentioned this last week, Seth Godin, who kind of writes to business people, leadership people, uh, he, he coined a phrase that is perfect for this because Seth Godin puts it this way. People like us do things like this. Jesus was saying, hey, my kingdom, if you're a part of my kingdom, people like us do things like this. And this is what blessing looks like. But he wanted to be sure. He wanted to set the record straight. The Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus gathering people together and saying, hey, I want to make sure you understand this. I want to make sure that we're not double-minded, that we don't just have a belief in God, but live a different way. He's saying, if you're going to be in my kingdom and you are invited into it, there is a way of the kingdom life. This is our culture. This is who we are. Parents, you've probably done this with your kids. This is what our family does. I know that family does that. They eat sugar at 11 o'clock at night. Our family, people like us, do things like this. But here's the good news. It's a blessed life. It is so incredible when you lean into and experience all that God has for us. But he wanted to make sure that the people who were representing God were living out the character and the values of the kingdom that he came to establish. And that was never more clear than in the beatitude that we're going to look at today. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy, fortunate, well-off are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is this promise but it also begs a question, well, then what does it mean for us to be pure in heart? 
I want to take a moment here to, to help you, maybe if you're in a small group, men's community, when, women's community, home community, or you're just hanging out with your friends, talking a little bit about the scriptures. Anytime a metaphor is used in the scripture, let me encourage you what not to do. What none of us should be doing is saying, oh, blessed is the pure in heart. Well, I think this is what it means for me to be pure in heart. And someone goes, oh, that's very interesting. And then the next person goes, well, this is what I think it means for me or for us or for the world or for our nation or whatever. Like, this is up to me. This is what I think. Friends, that is very, very bad interpretation, a bad hermeneutic, a bad, you pick your theology word. It's not good because we're just kind of giving our opinion versus actually understanding what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the pure in heart. And it is kind of funny that I'm saying this right now about this metaphor, because the Bible actually says the heart is deceitful. Who can understand it? In other words, don't, you know, people are like, follow your heart. No, do not follow your heart. Follow Jesus. Jesus is going to guide you because our hearts think all sorts of things but blessed are the pure in heart. So what I, I want to make sure that you do that on your own. When you look at the scriptures, you go, it's not what I think. It's digging deeper to understand what Jesus was talking about. So we're going to go in that direction, asking that question, Jesus, what, what did you mean by this? And it's helpful that in the Beatitudes, often Jesus is actually quoting scripture from the Old Testament, specifically the book of Psalms. And this happened last week uh, when we talked about meekness. It's also true in this scripture when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Scholars, theologians, uh, they all agree that Jesus is referring back to a portion of scripture in Psalm chapter 24. So I want us to make sure that we understand the context from what Jesus was saying. So Psalm 24 verses three and four says this, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So maybe you can already see the, 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 the parallel there. The blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who can actually see God? And then it goes into these kind of three parts. The one who has clean hands, pure heart, does not trust in an idol. Hands outward. In other words, what you actually do matters. It's not just a faith thing, but also heart, the inward, the motivations and the desire. Then he talks about idol or swearing by or, or trusting in. So you have hands, heart, and, and kind of mind, where we're putting our trust, where, our, where do our thoughts go? And look at what happens in verse five and six. It says this, they will receive a blessing a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Hands, heart, mind. But in the Sermon on the Mount, maybe you're already wondering this, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't talk about the clean hands or the idol necessarily. He really focused in on the pure in heart. And we got to ask ourselves, Jesus, why didn't you go for the trifecta there? Why did you talk about just the heart? Well, again, context matters. And when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the gathering of people that have gathered to him were Jewish people who, who already believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, already believed in a Messiah that was coming. And, and Jesus came to set the record straight. And the religious people of the day, 
the pastors, if you will, the, the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they were leading the people of God in a direction that was very outward focused and had very little inward focus. And Jesus was going to have none of it. And he shows up and he does not mess around in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't mess around when it comes to the religious leaders because he is here to say, no, 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 that is not my kingdom. I am here to show you what my kingdom is about. And so he gives this urgency and focuses on the inside because so much in Jesus' day in that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 was on the outside. And so Jesus sets the record straight. In fact, in Matthew 23, if you've never read Matthew 23 before, um, you got to read it because it is like high drama chapter, okay? This is the chapter where Jesus talks specifically to religious leaders, the Pharisees. And they call this the woe chapter. Not like, whoa, that's so awesome. But like, whoa, you better take a step back right now. Like, whoa. In fact, uh, when I'm going to read you a portion of it because Jesus is so specific about the inside, the purity of heart rather than the outside. And it literally begins with the word whoa. Let's check it out. Matthew chapter 23. See, here it is. Whoa. Uh, and I don't know if he said it like that, but that's how I hear. Okay. Woe to you. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe. Jesus is not, sometimes, like if you read all of Matthew 23, you, you should probably ask yourself, Jesus, are you allowed to talk like this? Like this is, this is direct. But Jesus, like we talked about last week, in perfect meekness, in perfect humility, it's not the limitation of saying the right thing. Through this perfection, he does not hold back because he knows, come on somebody, and you know what it's like and what happens in life and society when we have something going on the, on the inside and a different thing coming out on the outside. And so Jesus says, my kingdom, here are the house rules. People like us do things like this. Blessed, happy, fortunate, well off are the pure in heart for they will see God. In other words, people like us don't do things like that. And the religious leaders of the day were all about the outside. This is very important. Jesus was calling for purity in an age of religious pollution. He was focused on the leaders, the people of God, not just the Pharisees, not just the teachers of the law, but he was addressing the Jewish people, the people of God. He was saying, we need to focus on our hearts. And these Pharisees, they were focused. They, they were polluted, if you will. 
unable to see God. Just everything was muddy because they were polluted with self-righteousness, self-indulgence, selfish ambition. They were busy pointing fingers at everybody else instead of looking at themselves. And this is a lesson for us. For those of you who believe in Jesus, for those of you who are wondering what it's like to believe in Jesus, if you're going to take a step towards Jesus, this is so important for us because it, I, I don't think I need to convince you, it's certainly true for me, that it is so easy to point out how polluted society is. It's so easy for me to talk about how messed up the world is. But when Jesus was talking, he mentioned nothing of the world outside. He was talking to everybody to view the inside. For us, it's so easy. And the church in America has become so known for our negative, angry voices at how dark the world is. And it's normal. And we see some really weird things. And we're like, I don't know if that's okay. We're like, did you see the Grammys? Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Or can you believe what they're teaching in the schools today? Oh, or can you believe what she's wearing? And we're pointed outwards and we're like, this world is getting so evil. This world is getting so dark. Those people are so polluted. And friends, track with me here. When you read the scriptures, specifically the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus rarely, if ever, even addresses the dark world out there. He talks about the dark hearts in here. And he says, that should be your focus. That should be your attention. If Jesus had social media, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, Twitter, he, he would not be tweeting about the big, bad, dark world out there as much as he would be saying, let's start with the darkness, the pollution of us in here. Because he knew, he knew if we can work on ourselves, if we can admit our own pollution of those of us who already believe, we can be a shining light, a good representation to a world that desperately needs to know who God really is. And my concern as a pastor, and I think Jesus' concern to a people, was if all they wanted to do was talk about the Roman tyranny and all they wanted to do was talk about how everybody else was messed up, they would not spend any time saying, God, purify my heart. I want to see you. And what would happen if a church like ours decided to lean into what God was inviting us into this kingdom that is a different kind of happy, that leads to a different kind of life. And we did it not by being angry out there, but by saying, God, change me in here. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That is what, that is the key. Jesus focused on it. He could talk about a lot of things, but he goes, I'm going to talk about the pure in heart. What Jesus did not say Things like this, blessed are the pure in understanding, blessed are the pure in political opinion, blessed are the pure in intellectual reason, re reasoning. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. Not that there's something wrong with understanding. Understanding's good. Not that there's something wrong with political opinion. That's fine. Not that there's wrong with, anything wrong with intellectual reason. He's saying, here's what the focus is. What we spend our, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. I love how, um, uh, Danish uh, theologian, 19th century, Soen Kierkegaard, he wrote extensively about being pure in heart. He wrote uh, what would 
be known today as like a dissertation, practically a book on really just focus so much of his own life and ministry to specifically just this one verse. What does it mean to be pure in heart? And out of all of his writings, out of all the things, he boiled down what it meant to be pure in heart into this one thing. He said this, to be pure in heart is to will one thing. To be pure in heart is to have no mixture, not a variety of things, but to truly will one thing. No mixture, no pollution, no additives. It's not Jesus plus something. It is Christ and Christ alone. To radically reorient our lives to will one thing and to center him in every facet of our life to will one thing. And during the Sermon on, on the Mount, just moments later, remember this is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're only getting through the first like 10 verses. But Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is still preaching the same message. And he focuses on this idea of willing one thing in Matthew chapter 6. He says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek first Will one thing. This is what my kingdom's like. Everyone's invited. You don't have to stay where you're at. You're invited. It doesn't matter how messed up or how broken or how whatever. You're invited. But people like us do things like this. We seek first the kingdom of God. And it's important to know the context of this verse because we can take this out of context as well. Well, I think that everything added to me should be, you know, fill out your wish list. But Jesus was actually uh, addressing a very specific topic right around these scriptures, verses 30, 31, 32. People were very worried. They were very anxious. And he says, don't, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. The Father knows you and cares for you. And it wasn't like, oh, he's just going to hook you up. You're going to get what you want. That, that's not what this means. It means that we can put our trust in him and him alone and not dilute or pollute our lives by adding other things into what our one hope, our one trust is. And Jesus is saying, seek first this, this one thing. Blessed are the pure in heart and they will see God. We all know about, you know, trying to see through water and the more polluted, the more muddy it gets, the harder it is to see through. It, it blurs our vision. We, we can't see when we add things into what we're willing in our life and what we're, what we're holding on to. It's taking our vision in different ways. So I want to share with you two things that I think that can get in the way, that can cloud our vision, pitfalls to this, this path of, of, of having a pure heart. And these two things, uh, the first thing specifically, it may surprise you of this being a pitfall to a pure, having a pure heart. And the first thing that I want to talk about is this moralism. This can get in the way. It's when you, you will the right thing for the wrong reason. Your heart gets polluted when you're into moralism. Not morals. I hope you have morals. I mean, please, let's have moral, morals, not less morals. But moralism, moralism is when you will the right thing for the wrong reason. You see, at its best, moralism is just behavior modification. It's, it's behavior modification, but your heart, track with me here, your heart remains unchanged. 
In other words, moralism is doing good on the outside, but your heart is still messed up. And Jesus is saying, don't lean into moralism because moralism will help you on the outside. It won't help you on the inside. For instance, moralism is like, hey, let's help the poor. We're going to spend our time caring for those who are needy. That's good. There's it's moral. There, there's nothing wrong with that. But moralism is where you do this and it looks good on the outside. And meanwhile, on the inside, your heart still resents people who make more money than you. It looks good. Hey, look, I'm helping the poor. But your heart on the inside is like, I still, I'm just, uh, and I can't. And those people, I can't believe they bought that. I can't. Do, can you believe? And you're just, uh, that's moralism. You're trying to do the right thing, but, but for the wrong reason. It's just to make it look good on the outside. Like praying. Praying is good. Uh, I would consider it probably moral. I don't know if that's the right analogy, but, but praying is good. But, but it's moralism if you're praying to God only so that you can get what you want. Your heart on the inside, you're like, I just, I just want God to hook me up. I don't want to connect with God. I don't want to worship God. I don't want to align my life with God. I just, so look, I'm praying. Isn't praying good? Isn't helping the poor good? Yeah, but, but your heart isn't changed. It's like on, on uh, garbage day for us, that's Thursday. Thursday, any Thursday garbage people out there? Okay, same team, there we go. Okay, Thursday, we bring our, our garbage out. And this probably happens to you if you take your garbage out. Um, you might get home at the same time as your other neighbor and they're out getting their garbage. And then you look across the street and you're like, hello, and you smile and you're being a good neighbor. And you just put on this face. You're like, hello. And they wave back, hi. And you're like, hey. And on the inside, outside, you're smiling. On the inside, you're like, I hope you move soon. <laughs> Can't stand you. <laughs> right? Right? Moralism. It's on the outside looking good. On the inside, broken. Right? On the outside, looking good. On the inside, broken. At its best, at its best, it's just behavior modification. At least you're doing some good things, but man, that is not the answer. But at its worst, moralism is duplicity. This is where abuse, pain, disillusionment happens. Where someone is one way publicly moral, specifically to hide a deviant or alternative behavior, duplicity. This is where we've experienced friends or pastors or churches or family members who were one way and we found out later it was a cover-up for something entirely different. And the reason why God cares so much about the purity of heart is he knows the damage it does. And he said, don't do it. I don't see this outward. Your moralism is not fooling God and it's not changing your heart. 1 Samuel 16 reminds us of this. It says this, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God's saying, I'm after my kingdom. People like us, we do things like this all the way, pure in heart, you will see God. And again, maybe you've been affected by someone's hypocrisy. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a friend or a family member. And man, that, that, that took you a step backwards in life and relationships and maybe even your faith. And maybe you're here and you're like, I, Brian, honestly, it is hard for me to even be here because I'm on shaky ground. And as a pastor, somebody who does talk for God in a way, speaking messages like this, on behalf of anybody that's ever hurt you, I want to say I'm sorry. 
And I want you to know this, that no one hates hypocrisy more than God does because God knows the damage that it's done to you. And God hates hypocrisy. He hates when people believe in God and live a different way. And Jesus is here to set the record straight. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. You're invited to a different kind of happy where, where a kingdom is established with purity of heart where we will one thing. This kingdom, this kingdom is one of pure hearts. So if moralism is to will the right thing for the wrong reasons, the second pitfall to a pure heart it is called idolatry. Idolatry, is, it's a little different. To will the right thing among many things. And this is so easy for us to do. This is not something that we check the box and we're like, did it. All right, Brian, are you idolatrous? Nope. I believe in Jesus. No, no, no. Here's the deal. You need to know this. Okay. Anytime the scriptures are talking about idolatry, uh, it rarely had to do with the denial of God. Most idolatry came from God's people who believed in God, but also put their trust and their hope and their affection in other things. And God is saying, hey, I'm here to set the record straight. If you do that, my kingdom doesn't look like that. It actually doesn't produce people who will shine like stars in the night. My kingdom is one of, of pure hearts. And the reality is, as many of us, many of us sitting here have said yes to Jesus. And we've also said yes to a whole lot of other stuff. And we may not say this out loud, but it's something like this. God, I believe in you, but I'm going to live the way I want to live. And you're not going to tell me any different. I'm not going to say it that bold because that sounds really bold. But I, my identity will be found in how I decide my identity, not the scriptures. And my finances are going to be how I decide my finances, not God's way. My, my marriage, my relationships defined by me. And that is a willing the right thing. God, I believe in you. God, I, it's, it's your grace alone that saves me. I believe it's idolatrous and it pollutes our hearts. Again, it means that we haven't willed one thing. We haven't radically reoriented our lives to trust in God's kingdom, that happiness is not found in doing whatever we feel our heart is telling us, but whatever God has guided us in saying, I have created you on purpose for a purpose. The, the, King David is such a great example of this. We did a whole series about David. And David was known for two things. It's kind of weird because the two things he's known for, one thing he's known for is being a man after God's own heart. That, that's pretty great. On the other hand, David is known as an adulterer and a murderer and a list of other things. And the question should be asked, how can David be a man after God's own heart and this guy who had a record he had a list. He had, and these weren't like, oh, this was horrible, egregious sin. The good news, friends, for you and for me is that David was a man after God's own heart because the scriptures do not say, blessed are the perfect in heart, for they shall see God. Is anybody else grateful that it does not say that? Blessed are the perfect in heart because like, well, cancel me now, right? Like I'm off the list. I'm off the list. It's blessed are the pure in heart. And out of David's own sin, he learned his brokenness. He recognized the mistakes of doing it his way, giving in to his heart's wishes. And instead, he became a man after God's own heart because he learned to will one thing. Psalm 27 says this, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This, this picture, this posturing of a life, on one hand, we can be like, like, are you talking just about one long worship service? Because that, that'd be really hard for me to pull off. No, no, not a big, long worship service. God is actually more interested in you worshiping God with your life than what you do during a church service. But it's this posture, like I'm gonna center God in everything. And David still had to repent. David still had consequences for his life. But again, it wasn't perfect in heart. It was pure in heart. And out of what God's great mercy, great love and great forgiveness, he forgave David and established his future kingdom through the line of David when Jesus was born, the son of David. Okay, so back to our text. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy, fortunate, well off. It's a prescription for our foggy eyes. It's, it's no more mud in the water. We will be able to see God. And I think most of us, most of us would go, God, I want to see you more clearly. I want to know what it's like to see you. Even the scriptures say that, that we currently are behind a veil. One day it will just be as clear as day. But we also don't have to wait for that one day because God says this will, this will muddy up your vision if you will purify your heart. Some of you have, have wondered when you see atrocities in the world done in the name of God. Like we think back to American history and we're like, how did slavery, like how did that happen? How did people who believed in God, we're like, what? Or we'll see the crusades and we're like, what? How could people who believe in God come to a conclusion that that was doing the right thing? This is so important. And of course, it's easier to look at those things rather than ourselves. But Charles Spurgeon, great preacher uh, uh, from England, uh, uh, in years gone by, he, he put it this way. And this is so important for us. Impurity of heart leads us to spiritual blindness. The more impure our hearts are, the less we will see God and the wrong decisions we will make. Or we will justify our behaviors. We believe in God, but we're muddy. We can't see God. And so we have political idolatry or we'll have do this in the name of God or think that it's okay to do this. And we're doing it under this umbrella of faith and it's not representing God because we actually can't see him. Friends, can you agree with me that what the world needs now more than ever is a clear representation of the goodness of God? Can you agree with me that what we're invited to do is say, God, I don't want to have that muddy heart that sees you poorly and represents you poorly. Jesus says, people like us do things like this. So to wrap up, I want to give you two handles, if you will, to hold on to. Like, what does it mean for us to have pure hearts? How, how do we get there? And two scriptures with two simple points. The first one is in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. This is so important for us. This is God speaking to his people through the prophet. And he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is a beautiful picture and important theology that we do not earn our pure heart. We do not go out and create 
a pure heart. We are given new hearts. God does the work. And so many people who already believe in God see a scripture like this and they're like, oh, that's for people who don't believe in God and God's gonna give them a new heart. You know, maybe parents, you taught your kids to ask Jesus into your heart. Again, not bad, that's true, um, but it's limited because this scripture was speaking to God's people who already believed in God. Which means for those of us sitting in this room, myself included, that already believe in God, we have to acknowledge that we can believe in God and still need God to renew our hearts. God, do the work. Cleanse my heart. I already believe, but I want to have a pure heart. So what do we do? If we want to have a pure heart, we receive it. We don't go out and try to do it. We receive it. And again, it's not moralism. It's not behavior modification. God changes who we are. We begin to hunger and thirst for new things. We see things more clearly. And what comes out of us is not an act and it's not a facade. It's a representation of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish in the kind of person God created you to be. That's through the mercy of God. The second insight comes from Proverbs. And Proverbs chapter four says this, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. We don't just receive a heart. We also guard it. We guard our hearts. That means there are things that we need to be cognizant of. We need to recognize. We need to not put ourselves in situations. We need to recognize how much this messes us up, how much it messes our kids up, our families, and our society up if our hearts are not pure that we are going to take a step away from God, not towards it. So guard it. Make good decisions about what you see and what you say, what you listen to, what you surround yourselves with. Guard it. Not out of, I am pure and I don't do those things, but humbly longing for God to have his way in you so that you can shine like stars in the universe. And this is such a great time. I'm so glad. We're going to wrap up with this. I'm so glad that we're speaking this message in the Beatitudes this week. We weren't super strategic to make it happen, but I'm really glad it actually did happen because some of you know that this week starts Easter season with Ash Wednesday and it begins the Lenten season. Now, again, depending on your church background, some of you are like, people like us don't do things like that. I, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Or, or maybe it's very meaningful to you. I don't know. Um, it can be just a religious thing that means nothing. It can also be very meaningful. And Lent begins on Ash Wednesday, and it's a 40-day process leading up to Easter as we align ourselves with the heart of God. And a lot of people abstain from something, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But track with me here. You could be like, for Lent, I'm giving up alcohol. And you don't drink alcohol for 40 days, and that's all it is. You don't align your heart. You're not pressing into the kingdom. You're not longing and hungering and thirsting for the things of God. You're just not doing something. That's fine, I guess. But I would encourage you, if you're going to participate, this is the greatest time to not just abstain from something, but to align your life. Not non-alcohol or non-TV, but to align your life. Put Jesus at the center of your calendar, at the center of your finances, at the center of your relationships, at the center of your identity. Use this Lent season to say, Jesus, I want to be in your kingdom. 
In fact, we created a resource for you. This is just optional, but we think it could be helpful. Uh, we have a video of it. This is on our website. Um, it's also, if you scan the QR code, I'm telling you guys, it's magical. Scan the QR code. It will take you right to this, um, a resource, Lent page, prayer, um, fasting, almsgiving, kind of understanding with a little bit better context what Lent is all about. And then scripture reading, a devotional guide. And then our friends at New Hope Church in Southeast Portland are actually holding an Ash Wednesday service. So if you're interested in going, man, I want to be intentional. I want to actually do something on Ash Wednesday. Uh, they're hosting a service. Some of us are going and we're just kind of partnering with them, with them in that. But at the end of the day, friends, it's a matter of our heart saying, Jesus, I want to learn what it's like to not just believe in you, but to will one thing. Help me know what it's like to parent and to have friends and to have a job and to have a budget and to live my life centered, willing one thing. It's a prayer that says, God, I don't want to have something on the outside while on the inside I'm just broken. Friends, I want to see God more clearly. Our society, America, our world needs to see God more clearly. That will happen, not by you being angry at the world and just praying for the world, but by accepting the invitation that Jesus has given to you and given to me. You're invited, but people like us, we do things like this. He does the work. We say yes to the work that he will do. Let's pray together. God, we come before you. Open hearts, open hands. We're asking for you to do what only you can do. God, I'm reminded of the baptisms today. I'm reminded of some of the conversations at men's community. There just seems to be an uptick in hunger an uptick in wanting to not just go through the motions, but to be a part of what you're doing. Jesus, may we be focused on you. Help us to know how to speak up when we need to speak up. Help us to know how to live and act. But may we start with ourselves, coming before you and inviting you to purify our hearts in a way that is full of love and mercy and forgiveness. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.